You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 125, Taxi Driver. Always fun when we get to do some content that involves a show favorite, Sybil Shepard. <laughs> She's a stone-cold fox right. in this fucking movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so this is our first Martin Scorsese movie. How it took 125 episodes to get here, I don't know. crazy. And in watching this, it stands out a bit as a Scorsese movie for me because I feel like so many of his movies are like so polished. And this kind of has like a more raw feel to it. Have you ever seen Mean Streets? I haven't, no. It has that kind of a feel. Gotcha. Yeah, you usually wouldn't associate a character like Travis Bickle with Scorsese. You picture right. more De Niro's character from Goodfellas. Yeah, That's yeah. That's what you would imagine. We have a lot to say about Taxi Driver, but before we jump into the movie itself, we got a couple of housekeeping items to get to. Maybe a big announcement? Yes, we have a big announcement. We'll get to that in a second. Before that, as always, follow the show on Twitter, AccuratusPod, and subscribe to our show on iTunes. Hopefully, some of our listeners have met their New Year's resolution, which was to introduce the show to at least one person. Well, I think people are like, well, I have a whole year. (laughs) I should have made it, introduce it to one new person per month. That's right. (laughs) Really going above and beyond with that resolution. As Matt alluded to, we have an announcement to make. As we've kind of mentioned on a few of the more recent episodes, we have been struggling to come up with content for Give Us a Seconds. Not that we need to have a million of them. Yeah, I don't think we're worried about it. No, and those will continue. The regular... Give us a second episodes. We'll continue from time to time when we have something to address in that format. But we would like to introduce almost an Inception-like podcast within a podcast within a podcast. That's right, yes. I mean, when you get two just creative forces together, it's hard not to just keep coming up with new ideas, you know? Bottom line is, we know how much you love listening to the sound of our voices, so we figured why not come up with even more things to put out there. So under the Give Us a Second umbrella, we are going to introduce... A new show called On the Record. That's right. Where we will finally start talking about music in a more in-depth manner. We're looking for ways to make our show titles longer. Will it say, give us a second in the title? Probably not. Okay. In the description, it will probably keep track of the give us a second episode number, but in the title, no. So this will be a continuation of give us a second as far as like the numeric sequence of the shows go. Yes. Okay. But not the regular episodes. Right. 
basically the point of the show will be to just discuss an album that we love yeah or have a lot of takes on it's kind of a way to get us back into music it's been (laughs) a while we have touched on music in the past in regular episodes and in give us a seconds but this will be our opportunity to not talk about an artist but just one specific album it really kind of let us hit on our big strength which is sort of marketing branding giving us a chance to name another segment or episode series yeah well i think this kind of provides us more opportunities for quote-unquote minisodes although i do think that on the record maybe longer than give us a second but whatever we'll see yeah we don't really know yet we have no real <laughs> sense of how this is all going to play out it's something we've been working on behind the scenes it's a blank for a while. canvas right now So when is this all going to go down? That's still kind of unclear, but hopefully soon. In the next couple of weeks, you will probably get our debut episode of On the Record. Let's just say meetings have been had. There's been an Eaton Park trip to discuss. There may even be more. That's true. So that's the bottom line. At least a McDonald's drive-thru run. (laughs) So now, on your regular Greatest Moments in the History of Forever feed, you could see regular episodes of the show standard give us a second episodes and now episodes of on the record talking about music and i know what you're thinking Uh, everyone's like okay here it comes pitch us on your patreon page like (laughs) finally we knew it was coming no the show is still 100 percent free yes believe it or not (laughs) so we'll see how this goes right now i would say that it's more of like a trial phase we're gonna do a certain amount of them and see how that plays and then Hopefully it goes the way of some of the successes of the show and not like the audio commentaries. Speaking of which, I do think that there may be an audio commentary coming on the horizon One more time. at some point. Yep. So we'll see. Get <laughs> we'll, that going again. We'll drag that out of the garage one more time. <laughs> <laughs> see how that plays. So that's our big announcement. Hopefully our listeners will be excited to hear even more bullshit coming out of our mouths. <laughs> well, that's the point. All right, so to the matter at hand, Taxi Driver, a movie that, honestly, the first time I saw it, I think I was in college, and I yeah. it didn't play well for me the first time. I don't know if I was 100% ready for a movie like this when it's I first saw it. It's a chance for, uh, you know, the loners, the rejected ones, to have a real hero. Well, yeah, and now that I've more grown into the Travis <laughs> Bickle role, the, yeah. the Travis Bickle time period The Mohawks of my life, starting to come together. I can now appreciate this movie on a different level that maybe I was unprepared for. Yeah, you couldn't see where it was headed back then. There was still a little bit of hope, and now that that's (laughs) gone, I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there are some moments that I, I I mean, I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about, though. I mean, Travis Bickle really pulls some moves here that could really go his way at a certain point in this movie. Oh, for sure. I definitely think seeing things kind of walking on a line and you're not sure which way it's gonna fall it's like a big theme in this movie whether you're talking about his descent into this madness or even post the big moment how that plays out like everything is kind of like (laughs) it's almost shocking yeah it's how you perceive it you're not sure exactly what you're supposed to take from it and there's a lot of different interpretations or whatever and yeah there are times in his journey where things could have gone right if dot 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 like what those ifs are depends on the situation but it's kind of like when we all look back on our lives (laughs) 
obviously everyone's favorite movie, Sliding Doors, that kind of summed it up best. That's true, yeah. <laughs> May 10th. Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now. Six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes even eight in the morning. Six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, 350 a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. Pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. Okay, so 1976, Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader. This movie was dangerously close to being directed by Brian De Palma. Oh, yeah. Who was kind of floating around? I watched the like a documentary. Yeah, thing. I watched a documentary about De Palma, and it kind of looked at this whole time period. And it, it definitely, I do love like these '70s style movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was definitely a certain vibe to them. Yeah, everything about this movie kind of fits into a certain aesthetic that you don't really see. I feel like if De Palma films now. directed it, there would have been like just never-ending scenes of him driving the taxi. You know, there probably would have been more like hardcore lesbian action, right? Close-ups on like a Sybil Shepherd, like nude in the shower. Oh God, I wish. <laughs> Schrader kind of took this from a lot of different places, a lot of different influences. Kind of this decaying New York City post Vietnam, this obsession with loneliness, and I think it turned out later on that he realized this was more autobiographical than he may have realized when he was actually writing it that he was kind of this person oh boy (laughs) and it's hard to come to terms with sure certainly but i do think that there are a lot of men in that mid to late 20s up into their 30s and 40s who kind of fall prey to this kind of thinking that puts them in this position now travis bickle is supposed to be like 26 yes that's it's kind of hard to get that i feel like from looking at him well, how old do you think De Niro was at the time? I don't know. He looked older to me. Hard I don't know. That's. I mean, it feels right for me. Okay. Because that would be 40 years plus 26. I guess it. maybe it's been some hard years. He was well, in the military. Well, I do think the there's, character there's definitely the hint of potential PTSD. Oh, for sure. We never get a lot of his backstory as far as Vietnam went, but I can't imagine it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not thinking so. De Niro himself was kind of on the rise during this time period. He hadn't quite become Robert De Niro, American actor that everyone knows and loves. Tribeca Film Festival. Right. But he was coming off of an Oscar win for his part in Godfather Part Two. Oh, wow. This is after that. Yeah. Okay. And he had already signed on for this for a cut rate bargain basement deal. Oh, and wow. he kept his deal... Because a lot of things had to go right for this movie to get made and had to be a tiny budget. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, he 
stayed true to the deal that he had made because he was already working on 1900 with Bernardo Bertolucci well, in Italy. What year was uh, the Deer Hunter? It was a couple years after this. Okay. It was like 78. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of on the rise now all of a sudden, and this kind of was just this moment in time where Scorsese was finally available because he went and did Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore when De Niro went to go make 1900 in Italy. So all of a sudden, this window opens up. They get the director they want, which is Scorsese, after they see Mean Streets. They get De Niro, who was in Mean Streets and had already worked with Scorsese. They all show up in New York City. They make this movie, and everything turns into this classic, unforgettable thing. But it seemed at the time, I guess, to them, like, all right, well, this is just something we have to do, and we have to get through this right now, because this is our only chance to do it. I don't know if Not they like really thought- Not like a big dream project for anyone? No, I mean, I think they all loved the script, but they had the feeling that it was too violent and that people weren't going to see it. I don't think there was a whole lot of like, oh, this is going to be a big hit and people yeah. are going to care about this movie. I mean, movie. the content is certainly dark. Especially for that time. Yeah. And we'll get into that, kind of that battle with the MPAA well, and all that stuff. I mean, first of all, when you get to the scene that Scorsese is actually acting in, it's kind of like jarring that like, <laughs> A, he has that many lines of dialogue, B what the lines actually entail. <laughs> well, that wasn't supposed to be him. That was supposed to be another guy who got injured on another movie and had okay. to like, pull out. Yeah. So then Scorsese just did that part. Well, it's like you're not really used to him being on screen or talking much, especially like the young version of him. Like my only other memory of it is him doing like interviews in the last waltz. Especially considering he's in the background earlier in the movie. Well, oh, I didn't even know. He's just that. sitting on like a fence. I don't know. He's Same just sitting guy. in the background when Sybil Shepherd walks by. Gotcha. If you know what Scorsese looks like, you notice it, and then all of a sudden he's a character in the movie later. I don't know if it's supposed to be the right. same person or if it's just whatever. So De Niro kind of wanted to write and make his own movie, and he had a very similar idea of like this isolated, lonely guy who then turns violent. And so basically the same idea as Taxi Driver, and it kind of all was a fun coincidence that he actually got to make the movie that Schrader was writing. And Schrader was on the rise, too, because... He would go on to do other big scripts like Raging Bull, I think, but he oh, also wow, okay. directed things. He directed like Blue Collar with Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor, like right around this time. And then he went on to make like Hardcore and he still makes movies now, like okay. First Reformed, which I just saw. Yeah. So, and I would say that that movie is very similar to Taxi Driver in a lot of ways. Instead of a taxi driver, he's like a preacher or a priest or something. But gotcha. Well, I mean, this type of character never really goes away, you know? I mean, (laughs) as long as human beings exist, we're always going to have these guys, you know? The other thing I want to talk about before we talk about the actual film, Bernard Herrmann's score for the movie. Kind of like that jazzy... Very, like, broody, brassy feel to it. Right. He's famous, obviously, for doing, like, the Hitchcock stuff, like Psycho, and this was the last score he did. That one piece of music that seems like it's only like eight bars or something that's consistently reused throughout it, Mm -hmm. that kind of sticks in your head. Yeah, it lends to the idea that this is a neo-noir movie, which a lot of people feel like it is. I don't get that same feeling, but there are elements of it. That music feels like it is, but the rest of the movie doesn't really. Yeah, I don't see... There's a certain vibe to it, but yeah, I don't really get a noir feel. There are elements of it, but yeah, this is more of the straight-up Descent into Madness movie. Not so much your typical down-on-your-luck hero from oh, like yeah. a noir. It's more of just like, I'm at already basement level low, and I'm going to keep getting lower, and there's not yeah. really and I mean, any you know, hope. 
you feel like overall Travis has a good heart, even though he's very misguided and Maybe. has got some issues. Oh, I guess at times he does. But I mean, do you? That's what I'm saying, though. Do you really find yourself rooting through him for throughout this movie? No, it's hard to say because he's kind of a walking contradiction, which oh. Sybil Shepherd points out to him. But yeah. that actually applies. It's strange that she says this to him when she doesn't really know him. But right. the idea that he has such a hang up about the filth of New York City and the pimps and the prostitution and the drug dealers and all this shit. But yet he himself kind of exists in that underworld and participates in it by constantly going to like the porno theaters on 42nd Street. It's like he's a part of it. Oh, yeah. But he doesn't see that. And so he's this contradiction where he thinks that it's acceptable to go to the porno theaters all the time. Well, but then also, on the other hand, have this real stick up his ass about prostitution and stuff. Which yeah. I get that they're not the same thing, but it's like, where is this hang up coming from? It's funny because, like, New York City in film, there's just like two versions of it mm-hmm. there's like the glamorous, exciting nighttime in the city like things always going on always adventure and then there's just like the scum darkest parts of society yeah there's the fairy tale version of it that you would see in like a west side story and then there's like the grim underbelly of like a lou reed song right you know it's two very different things and the 70s was like the peak the late probably like the mid to late 70s into the early 80s was like the peak of like the shitty dangerous place yeah because this definitely has that summer of sam feel to it and not the movie summer of sam but the actual like time period time period of racial tension a serial killer on the loose blackouts horrible heat and this movie itself was filmed during an incredible heat wave and a sanitation strike which helped portray the city streets as disgusting and filthy because it literally was disgusting and filthy (laughs) and it was humid and it rained all the time. Yeah, it definitely it kind of has it- that sticky, uncomfortable feeling, like atmospherically in this movie. And especially like when his dialogue voiceovers are speaking about like these things and like the setting around him, like making him sick. Yeah, because of that humidity and the raining on and off, it made it like hell to film because they were doing like okay, the scene where he's in that diner with Betsy Sybil Shepherd when she's on her break when they first right. are hanging out. They have those two giant windows behind each of them in the shot, and it would just start raining off and on, oh, yeah. and it, the continuity would be all fucked up, and they couldn't use the footage. I mean, it was like a nightmare to piece this all together because the weather was just out of control, which tends to happen with a hot and humid city. And it seems like a lot, and yet the end result is worth it because it's this snapshot of time of a New York that definitely does not exist to this extent anymore (laughs) it is funny i I enjoy when you have this sort of information about these movies because it is like you picture these things and you see something the way the final product and you're like this fact that like people have all these different visions of how it's supposed to be (laughs) versus what the end product comes out you know it's just sort of kind of a strange thing because you always just think that they made the movie that they set out to well, Schrader had Travis Bickle at, pegged as Jeff Bridges when he wrote it. And oh, wow. I, so, I mean, it's like... Scorsese offered it to Dustin Hoffman. There's something sort of meta about Chris Christopherson as the musician being mentioned in this movie. Yeah. And you start talking about like, Jeff Bridges and Chris Christopherson and Robert De Niro, and you're like, the deer hunter, Heaven's Gate, like <laughs> this whole time period. It's it was just, quite a scene. Right. <laughs> so 1976... 
Best Picture nominees, Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, Taxi Driver. Do you know what won out of that group? All the President's Men? Rocky. Ah, I guess I should have known that. De Niro was also nominated for Best Actor. He did not win. I I think it was Peter Finch from Network. Okay. It's crazy because it took forever for Scorsese to actually get that Oscar, which he eventually won for The Departed. He was nominated so many times. His movies were always nominated for Best Picture for forever and kept losing out (laughs) in weird ways. Now, I don't think people look back unfavorably at Rocky winning, but ordinary people winning over Raging Bull and Dances with Wolves winning over Goodfellas, like that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's kind of strange. <laughs> but, you know, eventually The Departed one. We're approaching Oscar season right now, and people write all these think pieces and all these subtweets and endless bitching about all these award things, and then you, like, look back at some of this shit, and you're like, why were we even... Look at some of these winners. Who cares? Right. <laughs> Like, this is so doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's not like the streak was intact for so long of them always getting it right, and then this <laughs> one year they finally fucked it up. <laughs> so that opening shot of the taxi emerging from the smoke like a monster, it's crazy. This is a year after Jaws, which broke the world wide open and was the first blockbuster film in which the shark is the centerpiece and is this monster. And it's kind of crazy how this shot looks where you just have that billowing smoke on the street and then emerging from it is this taxi. It's kind of it's, disappointing. It's, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're kind of like, huh, what is what is this? What right. is happening? Because you have to imagine that a lot of the people seeing this movie opening weekend in 76 didn't really know that much about what they were in for. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't know what the marketing campaign would have been for this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> We have Travis Bickle honorably discharged. I would have just put like Sybil Shepherd on billboards across America. <laughs> Taxi driver. I'm sure there were some Sybil Shepherd billboards in her day. Oh, I would think, yeah. Being like a model and then. If there were any smart star. marketing people back then. Travis Bickle, honorably discharged U.S. Marine, chronic insomnia. At one point, he says, days go on and on without end. And he's Wouldn't kind you of just, just floating around. I mean, how do you live like that? Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, th- this question is for you. <laughs> Not easily. Whenever I can't sleep, it's painful. I, I hate it. Like, yeah, I will wake up in the middle of the night, but it's usually because I fell asleep at 8 p.m. <laughs> so then I wake up at like two in the morning and watch a movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, this reminded me of like Fight Club and I'm sure off the top of my head, I don't really know any other examples, but it seems like a common thing to have your central character being this kind of fringe person who can't right. sleep. Yeah, That's where like a lot of things spring from, this kind of extra time that you have where your mind starts playing tricks on you, and it can easily go wrong. Well, I've always heard people talk about, not always heard, I guess I've heard it a couple times, situations of people being in bands and like being on tour and like talking about it and and even if it's not in bands like whatever like some sort of traveling thing when you're on the road a lot even though these people will like party and stuff they'll be like you know what it's not even the drugs and the alcohol that like really makes you crazy it's just like the never sleeping yeah that it just makes you crazy i can definitely see that so the movie Taxi Driver is kind of this monument to loneliness and isolation, as I mentioned. Just very relatable content for the members of this show. <laughs> for sure. And the next part, which we have to look forward to, which is that inevitable descent into madness, which I've mentioned a few times, that's where these things lead when they're unchecked and not addressed. Yeah. So Travis, he becomes a taxi driver. He's 
brave enough to go into all the bad parts of the city that the other drivers won't go into. And he's kind of just spending all this time driving around and then his free time going to those porno theaters. And he starts this diarrhea and we get heavy narration, which kind of continues throughout a (laughs) lot of the film. Right, that never goes away. And it kind of is the only way to give us any kind of window into his psyche because he doesn't interact with people that often. And when he does, it's not normal. (laughs) I do like when he's at the porno theater buying all those snacks. (laughs) And then it's like (laughs) $1.85. Out of the blue, he sets his sights on Betsy, played by Sybil Shepard. He compares her to an angel right off the bat. Yeah, which you're like, well, of course. (laughs) She's wearing white. Yeah, and this plays into the whole Madonna horror complex that kind of is a big theme in this movie, but also we kind of see that complex go to its natural conclusion, which I have a cool quote from Scorsese somewhere, which we'll get to later. He sees her working for the campaign office of a guy named Charles Palantine, who's like a senator who's going to run for president. Albert Brooks featured prominently in this office in sort of a ridiculous getup. Albert Brooks says, Tom, they didn't really know what to do with this part. It was like an uninteresting part. Where was Albert Brooks's career at, at this point? I think he was pretty known as a comedic actor, and okay. that's why they cast a comedic actor in this part. Although, originally, Scorsese offered this role to Harvey Keitel. Oh, wow. That's and weird. Harvey Keitel wanted to play the pimp yeah. instead, who barely had any lines, and right. then they added stuff for him later. Albert Brooks is kind of a funny character in this movie. He doesn't really do or say a lot, but he kind of brings a lot to the scenes that he's in yeah he pops <laughs> at first travis is just kind of doing some light stalking like waiting out dry, you know sitting outside the campaign oh, office parking it right in front of it yeah <laughs> and staring it <laughs> right. so let's talk about sybil shepherd for a minute there's a lot of rumors about what happened with her on the set of this film it seems like now 40 plus years later everything's fine i don't really know what exactly happened okay as i mentioned to you off mic it seems like there was kind of a personal vendetta between her and one of the producers julia phillips who wrote a book and then wrote all this nasty shit i thought it was funny in talking about how sybil didn't remember her lines in certain scenes and how it was like angering everybody and then there were times when scorsese had to give her line readings and all this stuff just humiliating out of all of that she says and this is directly taken from the trivia section on imdb oh so there you go Producer Julia Phillips claimed Martin Scorsese cast Sybil Shepard because of the size of her bottom, which added to her sex appeal. Well, can you blame him? And I was like, she has a great figure and she looks incredible. I didn't really notice like the size of her butt or anything. She walked into, she actually did read for this part. It was Scorsese, all the producers, even De Niro was sitting in on it at this point. Schrader, of course. And like, just gave like a horrible, horrible reading, and everyone's trashing her, and then it's just like silence for a while, and then Scorsese's like, "Yeah, that ass though." <laughs> I was really wondering where you were going with that. <laughs> Apparently, what happened was word got to her agent that Schrader and Scorsese and the producers were looking for quote a Sybil Shepherd type, and her agent was like, "Well, what about Sybil Shepherd?" <laughs> And they're like, oh, yeah. Uh, I think they originally thought there was no way she would do this movie. Because this movie's content is Super fucked up, yeah. And she was more, at that time, especially by the mid-70s, was way more mainstream. In fact, the only thing even remotely subversive, I think, was her appearance in The Last Picture Show, which was her first movie. Yeah, and there's definitely some over-the-line content in that. 
Right, but that you could chalk up to like slightly innocent True. kind of teenage bullshit where this was like hardcore depravity in right. this movie. True. <laughs> but she wanted to do it and I think she was even working on another movie at the time or potentially going to be doing another movie. And her agent was like, well, you have to pick one or the other. And she picked this because she thought this would be way better. So, I mean, whatever the issues were, I don't know if any of that shit that was said about her was true. I don't know if she what was. What about her ca- bottom? <laughs> about her butt, about her needing to have line yeah. readings and all this stuff. I don't know. but I don't know. I think she's perfect for the part. I mean, she's a true she, yeah, beauty. Yeah, she's very angelic, and she kind of has that she, and, playful and nature he, that makes you believe that she would go along with some of the things that, that she goes along with. Right, and maybe it is like the, the thing. I mean, she seems last picture show-esque in this. Like, she's kind yeah. of, yeah, going along with things, but also, like, super dismissive as well. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about her character here in a second. That first interaction is not an interaction. Travis just drives away when Tom comes outside to be like, hey, what are you doing? And then we meet Travis's little group of friends. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of like when we have meetings about the show, like when we go to Eaton Park and stuff, you know? Just Wizard. Just like late night. Th- these are our people. Wizard played by Peter Boyle, a couple other guys like Charlie T and Doughboy. I mean, yeah. it's like a real collection of winners. These are just other people that drive cabs, right? Yeah. Because that's what you're supposed to take out of it. And the big moment here is that Doughboy mentions, or or he asks whether or not Travis has a gun because he has that reputation for going into bad neighborhoods. Right. So he plants the seeds that will come back up later. Almost right away, though, even during this scene when Travis is kind of staring off at the other tables in that place and he sees some guys that are quite clearly pimps, he definitely has that preoccupation. And you're kind of like seeing already... Because in his diary, he's referenced this filth that needs cleaned up and the trash on the streets and stuff. You're not That's 100% like, yeah. sure what he's talking about. It's a little bit like Rorschach from Watchmen. you know? Dude, I, seriously, in you my notes here, I've written right. Rorschach from Watchmen. Yeah, I can definitely see Travis Bickle being an influence on that character. Right, yeah. Travis makes up his mind to reappear at Senator Palantine's campaign offices. This time, though, he parks and gets out. I love that like outfit he's wearing. <laughs> I don't even know what material that is, that like red suede cat or corduroy maybe. I don't know yeah. what that is. That You don't jacket. see a lot of that these days. And so he goes in to actually talk to Betsy and he's like, I want to volunteer. Under the guise of, yeah, I'm volunteering for this But he's campaign. like, I, they keep trying to like push him off to another desk. And he's like, no, I think I just want to volunteer with you. Well, yeah, Albert <laughs> Brooks walks over and is like, all right, someone else can help you. And he's like, no, I'm volunteering to her. <laughs> and this is the scene that kind of makes it for the Albert Brooks part in this movie where he's kind of just flittering around walking back and forth and he's like looking and he just like won't leave him <laughs> right, alone yeah and it's clear that tom and betsy have some kind of a relationship but the nature or the seriousness of that relationship is left vague yeah you get the i, I see it's hard to even for me to wrap my head around what the structure within the office even is but it seems like he's in a higher position than she is I, and they're I but they know. kind of have a romantic relationship too hi i'd like to volunteer Great. I'll take you right over That's here. That's all right. I'd rather volunteer to her if you don't mind. And why do you feel that you have to volunteer to me? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Thanks. But what do you think of Palantine? Well, I think... Charles Palantine, the man you're volunteering to help elect president. 
Well, I'm sure he'll make a good present. I don't know exactly what his policies are, but I'm sure he'll make a good one. You want a canvas? Yeah, a canvas. How do you feel about the senator's stand on welfare? I don't really know the senator's stand on welfare, but I'm sure it's a good stand. <laughs> you sure that? Yeah. Well, we all work together here full-time, day and night, so if you would just like to step over there, I'm sure that the gentleman well, will I, sign you up. Well, please, I, I drive a taxi at night, so it's kind of hard for me to, to, um, to work in the day. So, uh... Then what exactly do you want? Would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me? Why? Why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot, and I see you here. I see a lot of people around you, and I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. That means nothing. And then when I came inside and I met you, I saw in your eyes and I saw the way you carried yourself that you're not a happy person. And I think you need something. And if you want to call it a friend, you can call it a friend. You're going to be my friend? Yeah. Travis says that he wants to volunteer because she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, unquote. By the way, going right for it, which I love. Yeah, starting strong. You didn't feel like he had this in him. From what we've seen in the movie up to this point. Yeah, it's that's what makes the character kind of interesting. It's not that he's a total incel or something. He's not adverse to talking to women. He's not necessarily shy. It's more that he just doesn't have any clue about oh, right. what He's people actually completely do. completely disconnected from normal society. Yeah, which becomes more and more apparent, and then there's kind of that moment of realization to with Betty later. To the point that later. you'd be like, how can someone be this disconnected from normal society? <laughs> yeah, you do wonder what his life was like Before leading he up went to, to Vietnam. Yeah, right. <laughs> Did he live in like a bomb shelter? And so he asks her out on a date like straight up, and she's just like, why? He's like, have you seen you? I just was like, but really, why? Yeah. <laughs> why does she agree to this? Well, why? yeah, I don't get That's the most interesting part of her character is what is going on in her life. Well, the most, to me, unexpected moment of this whole movie is when she does go on like this date with him, whatever, to the diner. And he is just like laying it out. There's a connection between the two of us. <laughs> I saw you at that time. guy. You guys don't have a connection. And she's like... Yeah, that's why I'm here. Other, I wouldn't be here otherwise, or whatever. And that I'm like blown away by that part that she is reacting in this way. Which I guess though, it, it's just a good lesson. I mean, sometimes you just got to lead him to the water, you know. <laughs> I do think that there's something to how overly earnest he is that disarms her, and she's not sure how to process this guy, right? Because obviously Robert De Niro is not a bad looking guy, so it's not like she's gonna reject him straight up. Yeah. And plus, this was a time period where women weren't allowed to do that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so he gets past that first step. And what I'm saying is once he's gotten past that step of like outright rejection. Yeah. Then. He's got his foot slammed in the door. He starts saying push things. It open and basically, is he saying what she's always secretly felt when it comes to her and Tom and this whole life that she's living currently? Do you like the place you work in? Got some good people working for us. And I think Palantine's got a good chance. You know you have beautiful eyes. Do you like the guy you work with? He's okay. Yeah, but I know, but do you like him? 
He's funny and he's very good at his job. He's okay. Though he does have a few problems. Uh, I would say he has quite a few problems. His energy seems to go in the wrong places. When I walked in and I saw you two sitting there, I could just tell by the way you were both relating that there was no connection whatsoever. And I felt when I walked in that there was something between us. There was an impulse that we were both following. So that gave me the right to come in and talk to you. Otherwise, I never would have felt that I had the right to talk to you or say anything to you. I never would have had the courage to talk to you. And with him, I felt there was nothing, and I could sense it. And when I walked in, I knew I was right. Did you feel that way? I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Where are you from? Upstate. That fellow you work with, I don't like him. I, not that I don't like him, I, I just think he's silly. I don't think he respects you. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Now, she seems to me, though, like a girl that likes status. And I mean, you see, I don't this, know. you see this taxi driver walking in. I mean, she worked for a political campaign. Is there a more obnoxious job than that? No, there isn't. But <laughs> she could be. We don't even really know if he I, they may have mentioned it at some point. We don't really know what political party this guy's for. I don't know. It's kind of unclear. So she may be one of these hippie liberal types. I don't know. I'm thinking she lives in Manhattan. She would not step foot in his apartment. She's in basically Brooklyn. Allison Williams from right. girls. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. It could just be that she's lived this very straight-laced life, and then this wild-looking ruffian guy yeah. kind of rocks her world. That's and she's, the way I'm and feeling she's kind it. of it's This is almost bit, like an yeah. experiment. Right. And plus, she doesn't give a shit about Tom, so no, she just, no, he that, could go get fucked. If He's anything, a pathetic loser. Yeah. <laughs> sniveling around her desk. Yeah. Just pathetic. <laughs> I just want to point out, at the coffee shop, he orders an apple pie with a slice of yellow cheese on it. Have you ever heard of people doing this? Because this evidently is a thing that people do. I've seen it in a movie, actually, not this one. Thank you for smoking. Okay. He orders like a slice. Not. um, It's a Midwest thing, apparently. Yeah. uh, Like one of the guys orders a a slice of American uh, cherry pie with American cheese on it, or something, or apple pie with American. Uh It it seems like the grossest thing in the world. Yes, but I guess people do it. Yeah, I don't know. That seems disgusting. You know who else did it? Ed Gein. Well, there you go. I mean, Travis is Ed Gein-esque. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't kill his mom and turn her into that a lamp. That we know of. Who knows what his backstory is, because there does, isn't a lot of reference, well, but he does write that card he, to, his to his parents, parents later. Yeah. But I w- we'll get to that card, okay. which I think is insane. <laughs> yeah. Not even the contents of the card, although that is pretty crazy. But the card itself, I think, is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of weird things are happening. First, there's like kind of a random encounter with Charles Palantine, the senator himself, when he gets into the cab, and Travis just starts talking to him and is clearly <laughs> like unhinged. Yeah, I guess he's a senator right now, and he wants to run for president. Is that yes? Okay, but yeah, he's just got to be completely taken aback by this dude, just kind of like going off about how horrible everyone is. <laughs> Yeah, but I, that's the thing. You know, you see the politician in him because he does kind of, you know, yeah. charm Travis a bit. I can't remember. Is one of the guys in the cab one of the Secret Service agents from later or no? I don't remember that. I'm wondering if that's the first time he's on the radar. Because that not. guy, that Secret Service guy sticks out way later in the movie. But at this point, yeah, he wouldn't register with you. And almost immediately following that ride is the first encounter with 
Iris, played by a young Jodie Foster. Is that this who early in the movie? Okay, jumps yeah. tries to jump into his cab. There's like an <laughs> then, attempted escape, right? And then is pulled back out of the cab by her pimp co-workers. Her pimp. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. This actually. Well, she is... starts walking with the other girl though, right? No, no, that's, that's later that's when later. he's okay. like following her. Gotcha. But yeah, so she jumps in and she's kind of like wilding out, and then. You don't even really see that it's Harvey Keitel that clearly, although yeah. on a second viewing, I did pick up that it actually was. And he just throws that like crumpled twenty dollar bill in the seat to like, well, right, move on and forget about it. Yeah, this thing. is it. Kind of has your thoughts going down like a real dark road here. You know, it's almost Johnny Gotch esque or something. Well, yeah, that, I mean, it kind of is. Okay, in a way. yeah, that kids <laughs> which people being... like listening to this are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea of kids being like abducted and like sold into sex labor or whatever the big thing about this character iris i think you know they wanted to have authenticity so they cast an actual preteen in the role and that was one of the how big old is she in this like when 12 and a half oh wow which is her actual age she was Holy like 12 yeah. yeah she looks older to me they did use a body double during a couple of the scenes. I'm assuming the one where she fucking kisses Harvey Keitel later in the movie, which is real fucking dark. Yeah, that's why Harvey Keitel... Because she had her older it. sister stood in for her, who was like 19 or something at the time. Okay, wow. But, yeah, that was one of the big controversies surrounding Taxi Driver when it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival and won the Palme d'Or and was getting this buzz and was going to be released in America. And one of the big things was holy shit, you have, like, a child in this movie playing a prostitute. Yeah, it's, it's like, not really good. fucking dark. Right. But, you know, I think Jodie Foster turned out okay. I don't think it really ruined her life to be in this movie. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, it seems like she's done well. I mean, she's on the 40th anniversary panel with everyone else, so it's not like she oh, ran wow. away okay. from so this. Oh, wow, okay, so she even, she, she came back for that. Iris's appearance here becomes a huge part of the movie, and she turns into this symbol of moral decay for travis and he just gets fixated on her and it takes a little well, time for this to brew fixation well yeah it takes a little time for this all to come together because he's currently still fixated on betsy but things are going to go sour there eventually yeah so we're planting the seed now and it's eerily similar to how people are nowadays and you can argue that maybe travis's cause is slightly more just he's not killing people based off of religion or race or something like that or some sort of whatever is happening today with like mass shootings, but you can see the same kind of revving up oh, yeah. of your thinking. And he's already working himself up about the moral decay of the city. And then this child prostitute gets into his car and it, it hits him right in the face. The worst of the worst. Yeah. Regular prostitutes were bad enough. And then this fucking shit is right on his doorstep. And he's <laughs> like, what the fuck? It's hard to inspire a lot of hope out of that. But her pimp, Sport pulls her away, and that ends it for the moment. Now, I do want to point out something that <laughs> it's kind of a touchy subject about this movie is the racial component. A lot of these characters that are white in the movie were written as black by Paul Schrader, and Scorsese like was like, we got to switch some of these people to white or else this is going to turn into a whole racial thing, which I don't really think was the intention of the movie that oh, they wow. wanted to make. But like her pimp was supposed to be black. And I think all the people oh, okay. that De Niro kills at the end of the movie were supposed to be black. Like, it was a whole thing. Oh, uh, yeah. Well. And I think smartly I Scorsese it, yeah, was like, if we do it like that. There probably would have been some issues with that then, yeah. It's going to detract from what we're really going for. Right. 
and really dominate the conversation, which is a conversation they didn't want to have, which was a whole racial thing. And unfortunately, Taxi Driver has been cited as an influence on a lot of bad shit, including the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Well, that's a shame. That Hinkley guy was obsessed with Jodie Foster. Oh, boy. You know, that whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) Rocking the Mohawk. Uh, Yeah, I think he was. Okay. I'm not sure. So after that, we have the actual date. Betsy has agreed to actually go on a real date with Travis against all odds. Right. Despite everyone in in the world being like, what the fuck is happening here? In no universe should these two be going on a date. Here we are. Yeah. She comes off as simultaneously kind of worldly, but also very naive. And by the way, she's not seeing some of the red flags that you probably should see. And, you know, obviously we know this all comes crashing down, but in the beginning of this, it feels like it's going pretty well for Travis. Yeah, he buys her a gift. He seems to know how to talk. And she seems enthusiastic. Right. This is one of the big if moments where if he doesn't blow this, does he become the person he becomes by the end of the film? Hard to say. I don't know. Is the violence in him all along, or is he capable of salvation prior to that if things play out differently yeah it's hard to say it seems like there's some darkness in him that's gonna peek its head out no matter (laughs) what happens but on the other hand it's like you know sybil shepherd in your life full time yeah it's hard to feel like you could get over some hard to argue with that yeah so he takes her to a porn theater bold move real crazy yeah move for a first date this is like we talked about the switchblade play in Hellraiser is kind of a bold opener. Right. This is a equally classy move. Like I, I just met this and beautiful this is, woman. She agreed to go out with me. I'm gonna take her to a porno movie. This is played in a just a crazy way because obviously we we know that Travis has issues, but up until this point, I still felt like he had a certain degree of normalcy, kind of an understanding of what was going on in the world. He just couldn't sleep and he stayed up all night and was. I think some of his diary entries, you could see that he was not, he didn't have a great grip on reality. Some of his ramblings. Because that's the thing. The way that this plays out, it's definitely like framed in a way that he's just like so naive. But I would argue, is he an idiot? Who knows? This is nuts. How do you not pick up that this is, I mean. This speaks to him not really understanding anything about women or dating at all. Humans or society, yeah. (laughs) And an inability to read social cues, because not, let's not act like there's zero chicks on the planet that would be down for this. There are some. Okay. <laughs> let's All be right. real. Yeah. Not every lady is an angel. Yeah, no. <laughs> I definitely think there's some women that would have rolled with this. Maybe not a huge percentage. Yeah. And definitely not ones that are working for dressed like or whatever. Sybil Shepherd and look like Sybil Shepherd. But yeah, I, I mean, he doesn't know anything about social status, about people who are decent but even this when she's like that's what i was saying about right he is so against all this shit yet he takes a like a nice classy woman who is good enough to go out on a date with him to a porno movie and it's like dude you are a part of this thing that you are so obsessed with hating and you are part of it the most tragic thing about this is this is how much he had her on the hook because she stops at the front of the fucking theater and is like this is a dirty movie and he's like no, no, couples come here all the time. <laughs> and she's buying this and she still goes into the theater. It's like, yeah, that you how are much like, what her. is she doing? Right. You do kind of have that feeling with her that she wants to see how far she'll go. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is more of an internal thing with her now. Literally, one minute in the seat was like, okay, this is way further than I should have gone. 
and there is that probably oh, couples come here chilling realization that you are in the Gonna presence of a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> so she runs out on the date and goes home. Things fall apart oh yeah and she's kind of harsh on the exit too i mean she's like yeah i already have this album you know she had to like let him know that well yeah well she decided that she was shutting it down completely right. yeah which leads to some humiliating attempted reconciliations and oh, apologies boy. and whatnot although it's funny when he's on the phone with her and you're only hearing his part of it i'm like it doesn't sound like it's going that bad <laughs> well like again it was that time period where there wasn't like outright rejections I don't know. It was kind of a social cue, I guess, that women had to be like somewhat nicer, which I'm saying is wrong. It was such a weird thing, but it's the only explanation for that. You would think after something so bizarre that he did that she well, would have no interest in even talking to him It's a at weird all. thing, and obviously it's like become such a big social topic over you know the past however many years now, but it's, there is this big thing of like... If some male reacts to not being able to get women in this way of like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. This is horrible. Like, it's so bad. Women can react like, well, you shouldn't be putting that on me. Like, that's unfair to me as a woman for you to put that on me, which I do think is true. But I do think there's also a point of like fucking rejection and being like shut out by women is fucking harsh, too. And I think this sort of paints that a little bit. There probably needs to be a lot more give and take about some of these things than there there seems to be nowadays because I do think that just because a guy like Travis Bickle is having a hard time and not picking up on social cues and stuff it doesn't mean that his feelings are not valid oh true yeah it's not on Betsy to fix him or, or to deal with whatever bullshit he's going through but right. that doesn't mean that he should just be written off by society yeah it's like well clearly he needs some help. And sometimes that can be a minor thing. If we're talking like fucking internet trolls that say mean misogynistic shit and act inappropriately, maybe it's just a little bit of counseling, a little bit of talking things out. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who turns violent like Travis Bickle, but there's different levels of like, hey, maybe somebody can be rehabilitated if the right kind of help is offered and accepted and people can right. kind of evolve and Travis just clearly doesn't He's not understand. Get he doesn't a even shot really hundred percent. Yeah. I don't think he really even fully grasps what he did wrong. Right. And so that might mean he's well, on the spectrum. I of mean, some he's kind, reeling but. as she's walking away. He's like, I, I, I would have taken you somewhere else. We can go somewhere else. Like, like I don't really know a lot yet. about movies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that is actually just like sad that part, you know. So after some failed attempts at reconciliation. There's the scene with the jealous husband in the back of the cab where they go and sit outside where I mean, obviously the wife this is having an affair. Scene is planting a seed in Travis. Well, I also think that he is angered by this guy. True. I think he's so. just so casually yeah. talking about murdering his wife and he's saying it in a way that's like really extreme talking about like and he's like the, so calm about it. Yeah, I think this fits in with his same feeling about iris like this is more of the trash and the filth because well the one thing you have to understand about a guy like travis bickle is to an outsider like us he is the same as this guy but to him he is not right he is the vigilante who is pure he's doing something good by getting rid of this kind of filth yet he's still kind of the same person he's a true anti-hero in that he may be doing something decent by killing the people that he ends up killing but he's still a murderer yeah and 
this movie kind of serves as an example is why vigilanteism could be wrong because <laughs> we don't really know who watches the Watchmen. The, yeah, we don't know the motives of this person. We as the viewers do, but the people in that society where Travis Pickle does what he does, they don't really know him at all. Which we'll get to that with the ending. But this scene though, it just plays like so weird because <laughs> the guy is just so openly talking about like murdering his wife yeah in a pretty like graphic way yeah what the gun could do to her pussy right <laughs> which but is an he's insane thing to so say. calm about it it's like you can take it you understand it if he's like flipping out and it's in like a bit of rage and he's like slamming a bottle of liquor and like he yeah. just found out about this and it's just like someone saying crazy shit but this just seems like so calm and calculated and cold that is just like so unnerving yeah, I definitely think that adds to kind of the horror of the situation because it is much more off-putting to see right. somebody talking like this because it feels much more serious then. I'd say so, like yeah. Like he's already made up his mind and he will kill his wife for having this affair. Do you, do you see the woman in the window? Yeah. you see the woman? I want you to see that woman because that's my wife. That's not my apartment. It's not my apartment. You know who lives there? Huh? No, I mean, you wouldn't know who lives there. I'm just saying. But you know who lives there? Huh? A nigga lives there. They're like that. And I'm going to kill him. nothing else i just i'm gonna kill him what do you think of that hmm? i said what do you think of that don't answer you don't have to answer everything i'm gonna kill her i'm gonna kill her with a 44 magnum pistol i have a 44 magnum pistol i'm gonna kill her with that gun did you ever see did you ever see what a 44 Magnum pistol would do to a woman's face? I mean, it would fucking destroy it. Just blow her right apart. That's what it can do to her face. Now, did you ever see what it can do to a woman's pussy? And that you should see. That you should see what a 44 Magnum is going to do to a woman's pussy, you should see. That's that. I know, I know you must think that I'm, you know... <laughs> You must think I'm pretty sick or something. You know, you must think I'm pretty sick. Right? You must think I'm pretty sick? Hmm? <laughs> right? I bet, I bet you really think I'm sick, right? You think I'm sick? <laughs> In response to that scene, which is funny because Scorsese is playing the jealous husband himself, Martin Scorsese called Taxi Driver, quote, my feminist film. Oh, so there you go. Because it takes macho to its logical conclusion the better man is the man who can kill you this shows that kind of thinking shows the kinds of problems some men have bouncing back and forth between their perception of women as goddesses and whores and travis in his isolation is kind of trapped with his limited worldview and it becomes an echo chamber of anger and hatred and loneliness and depression. And soon, the, way that the only like, way out is a way that you'd have to shoot your way well, out. Well, yeah. But the, the way that this story is like woven together, it's hard for me to remember where like each piece of it fits in. So at this point, with the Betsy stuff, 
is he like sending her flowers still that are getting? It seems like that kind of is all. Is that all in the rearview mirror now? Yeah, like pretty we're much. Past it? Okay. So what is the deal with the flowers? How do they all end up back at his apartment? I don't know. I guess I like really he sends that. them to her and she rejects them, so they get returned to sender. Okay. I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah, I I was a little unsure about that too. And then they're just like sitting in his apartment, like dying. Yeah, but he doesn't throw them away. Right. It's like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Which also rings of a serial killer. Another what-if moment of the movie comes next when Travis, who is now just completely almost swallowed by this darkness, he actually does reach out to his little group of friends. And oh yeah, Wants there's really to have, like, no a- help from Wizard at all. <laughs> because I, and in all You've fairness been to him. feeling kind of down lately. Yeah, in all fairness to Wizard, I don't think he fully grasps the situation. Well, and he's not really so. qualified yeah. to assess it. Right. But yeah, I mean, it's not as if Travis is completely oblivious this to was, his problems. I he f- reaches out. I feel like the conversation with Wizard is sort of like the inspiration to the great HBO show Taxi Cab Confessional, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you make of Wizard's like crazy penthouse forum story that he tells? earlier in the film where he's talking about the woman changing her pantyhose and him going into the back seat and fucking her and her giving him a $200 tip. <laughs> Did you get it the impression maybe that, not true. that the other two are laughing because they, you know, they know it's all a joke, but that Travis kind of was like almost believing it because it fit this worldview of the goddesses and whores? Well, yeah, I definitely felt like Travis was believing it. He's that naive. He's the type of person right. that would take Sybil Shepherd to a porno. Exactly. <laughs> Because of this inability of his friends to help him out, it's just this ever-increasing isolation. And Travis crosses paths with Iris again, and he almost hits her with his car. This is when he starts following her and her friend along the side of the street. Oh, that's right, yeah. And she keeps looking back at him, right? Yeah, which, I mean, makes sense. He's like a much older guy following in a car. (laughs) Is there not recognition there? No, I don't think so. Okay. But maybe. But when he brings it up to her later, it's like she does remember the first interaction in the cab. Or does she just remember that it happened, not that it's him? Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. I love the way she looks in this, like, with those, like, raccoon eyes, you know, the dark circles around her eyes. Yeah. She's always wearing, like, the crazy sunglasses and the big hat and everything. Yeah, with the sunglasses thing, it's like she's changing sunglasses multiple times in that one scene. Yeah. (laughs) Who is she, me? Yeah. Tarnished innocence. It reminded me of the the old joke about, I think it was maybe Mean Girls or something like that, where they... the punchline of the joke was a baby prostitute or something like that, which, you know, is funny, haha, but, like... The whole idea is actually so horrific. Well, yeah. And I couldn't help but think about a movie that I think would come out a few years later, Pretty Baby. Okay, which I'm sure everyone's seen. <laughs> which stars Brooke Shields as an underage prostitute. Yeah. And just kind of like the horror of this. And, I mean, it is such a touchy subject, though, because obviously to do a movie like Taxi Driver or Pretty Baby or whatever and then cast an actual underage person in this role. How do you do that? How do you navigate it where the person playing the part doesn't end up damaged in some way? But at the same time, though, it's like... Yeah, I don't know that you can guarantee that. If you're going to address an issue as dark as something like an underage prostitute, I feel like you have to confront the audience with that. You can't actually have a girl that's like 26 playing a 12 year old it's just it's not gonna play right how does matt watch this and not end up damaged (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah i don't know what do you think about the iris character in general where she comes from how she yeah how she gets there (laughs) what is this character it's one of those things it's almost like the movie kids 
where you're like, yeah, this seems believable, but I almost just don't want to accept that it exists. In I think this that's way. where I'm at. Yeah, like it's I, like, did this person really exist? Probably, but I just don't want to have to actually confront the thought. Well, that yeah, because it's about it's as dark as anything that could possibly exist in society. Especially that part later when her pimp sport is describing all the things that Travis could do to her oh, yeah. with the money. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> That, that'll be the opening club. Oh, no. <laughs> we planted that seed earlier about the gun, and now I guess because he feels there's no other way. Well, should we point out there is another scene with Betsy where he goes in and like yells at her, right? When he gets, oh yeah, you know that's kind of a big moment. <laughs> he goes in and flips the fuck out publicly. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just put that under the embarrassing reconciliation attempts. Yeah. Um, it did remind me of... You're going straight to hell. It's like thrown out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who hasn't? Well, right. I yeah. mean, it reminded me of some snapshots of my own life. <laughs> Your attempts at reconciliations? <laughs> <laughs> you bitch! <laughs> it reminded me of that scene from Blue Valentine where she works at like, right. the doctor's oh, office. And it's man. Like, just oh, boy. So No, cringy. that one is so much worse. <laughs> well, yeah, that's humiliating oh, on so boy, many yeah. levels. But, yeah. Someday we're going to do Blue Valentine. No, I can't. <laughs> it's too, too real. <laughs> okay. We talked about the gun. Doughboy introduces Travis to Easy Andy. I love this guy. Who is this actor? This is like a feels like a crazy long scene. Yeah, this scene is crazy. Okay, so thank you. Easy Andy and Travis go to this, I guess it's a hotel room, which it's a hotel room unlike any other hotel room I've ever seen. Right. It's like all windows. Yeah. And they just open up a suitcase and there's a bunch of different guns in there. So sometime between the movie The Apartment and now, hotels became available in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They basically just go through a bunch of these guns. Travis wants this like huge gun. Yeah. Like a three fifty seven Magnum or something. And then Easy Andy pitches him on all these other little or handguns. Right. But he well, essentially says the same thing about yeah. every gun. <laughs> He's just like, this is a pretty little gun, just a beautiful gun. He just says that over right. and over. Quite a salesman. And then Travis buys all of them. He buys four guns from him. And this leads to workout regimen, constant scenes of target practice. Yeah, I'm not eating like candy anymore. You know, or whatever. He's like, I'm going to treat my body right now. I, I don't really know what inspires all that. I guess, does he really need that to seek out? I mean, he's going to shoot people. Well, he's just, like, lost his mind. Right. Okay. He's building up towards something. He's actually working up to this attempted assassination on Charles Palantine, and he does that recognizance mission. Yeah. Where that's just where he talks terrible. to the yeah. se uh, Secret Service guy, and he gives him, like, the fake name and right. address and yeah. all that shit. Which this I is... love that Secret Service guy. I love when he's just like, well, yeah, if you're thinking about applying, just give me your <laughs> home info. It's just, like, a fun interaction. This is where I wrote the whole thing about Rorschach from Watchmen. I mean, he really is becoming this almost Batman-like character. I don't know. He's building that contraption that's, like, spring-loaded in his arm for the one gun. He's got the holster for the other gun. And then, of course, the iconic line from the movie, Travis talking into the mirror, you talking to me, that whole right, sequence. Right, right, yes. It, it comes so late in the movie that it's almost unexpected that it's even in this movie. Yeah. Even though it's such a famous scene and it's always sort of referenced in other movies you know what i mean or just yeah. in pop culture in general yeah i think de niro said that he got the line from bruce springsteen like talking to the audience 
Oh, and okay. he was like, I don't know. He, I guess, he was listening to just some banter that Springsteen was having with the audience. Which this would be early days for being into Springsteen. I guess Born to Run came out around this time. Based on that comment, I, I don't know if Schrader actually wrote this line or not, but it grew into the most iconic moment yeah. from the movie. He's like shirtless with that giant holster, right? <laughs> <laughs> mean mugging the camera. And it's, I mean, it's disturbing. It's truly frightening to think about the online rhetoric that you read from these guys that go on these killing sprees now okay yeah with their guns and walk into places and you can see the similarities to this character and they nailed it on the head 40 years or so before these mass killings were really that common yeah that's true this is the kind of shit they were doing yeah they're in their room with their guns and they're ramping themselves up believing some narrative that isn't quite real yeah, when you start injecting like reality into this story, it is because Travis Bickle yeah. is more real in 2019 than he probably right. was in 1976. Yeah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and those people had Vietnam; they had an excuse. <laughs> I don't know what the well, fuck is going on now. Twitter, though, you know. Yeah, that's Twitter is our Vietnam. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually worse. Yeah. Okay, so Travis ducks into a convenience store. Just so happens to be right before an attempted armed robbery. He shoots the robber point blank in the face. This kind of reminds me of the uh, like the Boogie Nights robbery. Yes. Just how horribly wrong it goes. <laughs> I love this guy that owns the store or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, he's just like, I'll take care of it. Yeah, he takes it because like, Travis is like, I don't have a permit for this gun. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, all right, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Yeah. <laughs> Then he proceeds to take a pipe and beat the dead body. It's like, what is he? I don't. He I still don't really know exactly what he's doing. He's gonna stage some sort of a scene. I don't know. I'm not really sure. I was just thinking that he was so angry about it that he was taking it out on the. Well, dead yeah, body, yeah, you know? yeah. I I think that too, but no, I have no he idea. He doesn't what his have plan a permit is. for right. that gun either. I guess maybe this is before ballistics were a big deal, so they would just be like, well, all right, the clerk shot him. Yeah. Not really look into it. I don't know. I have no idea. I would have loved to see what what all this was going to happen with this body, but we don't get it. Yeah, this is just really just further escalation. This is really his first. This is his dry kill. run of killing. So right, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he may have as a marine, but sure. this is, as yeah. a citizen, right. this is his first. Now we can talk about that batshit crazy card that he writes to his parents, which has all of those weird lies about his life but also keeping everything secretive like he doesn't want his parents to know where he's living yeah he's very ominous about it he's just like someday i'll show up and there'll be a knock at the door (laughs) it seems like when he came back from the war that he was changed in some fundamental way yeah and he kind of drifted away and yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if that was what happened to a lot of guys coming back from Vietnam, that they kind of just drifted out of their families' lives and into this bizarre... That's why you had a lot of Psychosis, homeless vests. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys struggling with things because they weren't the same anymore, and Travis yeah. is just one of those guys. But the card itself has, like, a man and a woman... It's I guess it's some sort of an anniversary card because he's sending it for like anniversaries, Mother's Day, birthdays, all together. Right. And has like a man and a woman on it, cartoons like park rangers or something. But the woman has cartoonishly big tits. Yeah. It's such a weird card to send to your parents. Yeah. Again, it just goes back to that like can't do anything normal. <laughs> and then he kicks over his TV. And so I was like, is this the moment where it's just no going back now? 
because he's been spending a lot of time watching that television throughout the film. Well, yeah, you are just like, well, what are you going to do now? You come into this apartment and you see my TV kicked over and you're just like, oh, no. Yeah, I know here what's we coming go. next. Right? <laughs> you're like, well, finally we're here. We all knew it was coming. <laughs> this is when Travis now goes to see Iris. The only way he can figure to actually have a moment to talk to her is to pay for her services, basically. So he approaches her. She tells him to go see Michael, who is the same person as Sport, which is also kind of weird and confusing. Yeah. She just calls him Sport, which I guess is a nickname, but when it's business time, she calls him Michael. This is Harvey Keitel. So he goes and talks to him. Once Keitel determines that Travis isn't a cop, then he kind of like... Although he's always kind of on the fence about that. It's like 15 bucks for 15 minutes, 25 bucks for a half an hour. And he's like... You can do this, 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 and this. It's like every yeah, fucked up thing. We don't want to recite on this show. Come on her face. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. We won't say it. But, right. then, but I will say, I love how he tags it at the end, but no rough stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what constitutes rough stuff? Well, that's, I mean, it has to just be like beating her, basically. Yeah. But like anal sex for a 12 and a half year old, that isn't rough stuff. Okay. I guess we are going to get into it. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, it's an insane thing to say. Well, yeah, obviously it's so fucked up. They go into this room. There's like another guy who's like a bouncer guy who's another sleaze bag. He has to pay like 10 more dollars for the room. They go up to this room. I did think it's insane that they keep referring to it as make it. Like, are we going to make it? Yeah. Do you want to make it now? And I'm like, I'm very, once you've reached that level of depravity where you're going to have sex with this 12 year old prostitute, I feel like you could just start saying fuck or at least have sex. They're dancing around it by saying, are we going to make it? Right. (laughs) What the fuck is this? Like, I don't happy days. I like, what, what, what are we doing here? Right. But that's not his intention anyway. Right. Yeah. Instead of actually going through with this, thankfully, this is just a plea for her to leave this life. Right. He's and he's trying to get her to, to get her out savior, of this. Basically. Yeah. And she won't agree to do that, but she will agree to meet Travis the next day for a late breakfast, one o'clock. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that, that part didn't make me laugh. I was like, is this the same diner as the one he took Betsy to? I, I couldn't really tell. Yeah, but. I couldn't tell either. It kind of looked like a diner from the end of Chasing Amy with Jay and Silent Bob. Mm, maybe. Yeah. So Travis is preaching here in this scene versus Iris's naivete. She's constantly bringing up things like astrology and this commune that she wants to move to. She's so not with the reality of her situation, it seems. Right. Because I think if she was a little bit older, she would be guarded and not even saying anything like this to him. But the fact that she's like 12, she is being honest. She thinks that this stuff is real. This idea that she can just walk away at any time, that she can go to this commune, that things are going to turn out okay, that this is temporary almost. I wasn't even getting the whole idea of the commune. Well, it's just a silly dream. It didn't mean anything. (laughs) It was never going to happen. Right. Travis kind of knows that. He's kind of trying to tell her that, but he's not really good at expressing things. So yeah. he yeah, understands I mean, it, it that he's feels, ne- It definitely feels like she's having a go at him. I don't know. I think she's just like a kid. Yeah, it's true. Which is kind of like the sad thing is like she's still kind of. But the two of them seem like on the same level intellectually, maybe. Why do you want me to go back to my parents? I mean, they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell girl should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? What do you mean women's lib? You're a young girl. You should be at home now. 
You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. You're full of shit, man. What are you talking about? You, you walk out with those fucking creeps and lowlifes and degenerates out on the street and you sell your, sell your little pussy for nothing, man? For some lowlife pimp? Stands in a hall? I'm the, I'm square. You're the one that's square, man. I don't go screw and fuck with a bunch of killers and junkies the way you do. You call that being hip? What world are you from? Who's a killer? That guy Sport's a killer. That's who's a killer. Sport never killed him. He killed He's someone. He's a Libra. He's a what? I'm a Libra, too. That's why we get along so well. He looks like a killer to me. I think that that cancers make the best lovers, but God, my whole family are air signs. He's also a dope shooter. So what makes you so high and mighty? Will you tell me that? Didn't you ever try looking at your own eyeballs in the mirror? And so what are you gonna do about supporting that old bastard? When? When you leave. I don't know, I'll just leave them, I guess. You're just gonna leave? Well, yeah, they got plenty of other girls. Yeah, but you just can't do that. What are you gonna do? After this, though, is maybe the most disturbing scene in the movie, even more so than the violent, bloody ending, which is the scene between Sport and Iris. It's one of only two scenes, I believe, off the top of my head, in the movie that Travis is not in and not the main character of. There's one between Tom and oh, yeah, Betsy okay, early right. in the film, and then this one between sport and iris in like her bedroom that's true you don't think much of it but yeah i guess he is in pretty much every scene except for yeah. these two interactions and even in the one with tom and betsy he pops shows in. up yeah. as sitting outside he's of his a character car. in the background but yeah this scene is so fucking gross the way that he's kind of gaslighting her and telling her all of these things and kind of manipulating her and she's obviously a child so it's very easy for him to say the right things and it kind of implies that the way that pimps with their prostitutes often do that they have some sort of special relationship that he takes care of her and that he's her man and all this stuff suffice to say some dark material play and so they start dancing and he kisses her and it's just like oh my god Yeah. yeah, thankfully, you know, they used her sister as like an older body double. And so I assume that's what's happening here. But you're just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is what they would call a hard R right. in the 70s, right? Yeah. Okay. Although that's funny because I think most of the battles were over the last sequence and not this. Oh, it's just over the violence? Yeah. This scene is interesting to include it, though, because... It gives the audience real reason to support Travis's violence later in the film. That's true, yeah. And there's certainly a question of ambiguity as to how much we're supposed to support him. Of the two roads that his violence could go down, it goes down the one we'd prefer to root for. Right, and that's one of those crossroads moments, the what-if moments, and it changes how he's perceived by the end of the movie. Oh, absolutely. Travis mails iris some money with a note saying he'll be dead by the time she gets <laughs> I it i was thinking when i was watching this i was like man how many times have you written one of these letters <laughs> and mailed it yeah <laughs> only to be like well what did you think yeah. <laughs> like later <laughs> were you sad <laughs> by the time you be reading this i'll be dead here's 15 dollars cash <laughs> go get a new life <laughs> 
And he's made up his mind to go assassinate Palantine at one of those public speaking events. Betsy and Tom are there. At this point in the film, Travis has shaved his hair into a mohawk. He's got the spring-loaded thing. He looks crazy now, yeah. He seems like he would stick out in this crowd, and he does, even the way that, like, it's shot, you know? Yeah. Apparently, the mohawk was fake. It looks real. I think so. And I paid extra close attention the second time I watched it, but I think De Niro had already signed on to do a movie immediately following this, and he couldn't shave his head for it. Oh, okay. But yeah, it, it looks good. Yeah. Essentially, he sits there and he listens to Palantine talk for a while. He's in the back. I mean, he does look like a lunatic. Right. As Palantine is leaving and navigating through the crowd with his Secret Service guys and all that stuff, Travis is spotted pretty quickly and the plan blows up. Yeah. But he's able to escape through the crowd and they don't really have a read on him or who he is or anything. And Really just a terrible job by the Secret Service here. Yeah. Especially since it's pretty clear that he's reaching into his coat for a gun. Yeah. You'd think at that and point like they one, wouldn't even try to grab him. They would just shoot him. Right. Like one agent tries to chase him and like falls on well, his face. Like in all fairness, dope. Palantine is not the president. That's true. I don't know how much detail there yeah, is Yeah, I guess it's like the him. B squad. <laughs> so instead of going through with his plan to kill Palantine in front of Betsy, which I guess that's what it all would have been about. <laughs> I mean, see what I did? <laughs> you bitch. Well, it's like, well, why would he have picked Palantine? Well, I know. If not right. For her? Yeah. So instead of that, that night he drives to Sports Brothel in the East Village and basically just goes on a murder rampage that is insanely bloody and violent. He shoots Sport in the doorway where he had been standing earlier. He goes in. Not a kill shot, though, we find out. No. Quickly. He goes inside and he kills the bouncer in just an insane sequence where he shoots the guy's hand off. Well, yeah, oh, that looks so ridiculous. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> now, and then Sport is back in the mix immediately. Shoots yeah. him in the neck. This explosion of violence has echoes of the movie Drive to me, where there's kind of this build oh, that's up. That's true, yeah. And the character of the driver in Drive is kind of Travis Bickle esque. I think at so. Times. Yeah. It is like the violence at the end of Drive when him and Albert Brooks are just like stabbing each other. Like, Albert Brooks appearing right. in both. I know. I, yeah, I think, <laughs> I do think that it had to be an influence on Drive in some way. Sure. I do think Taxi Driver has been hugely influential. Over the last 40 years, for sure. So there you go. Yeah, Sport comes back in, shoots him in the neck. Travis takes a couple of shots you throughout really, this it, whole thing. It really doesn't feel like he would survive that shot in the neck. Right. That well, seems like a death shot. Yeah, we'll get to that, because that's a whole thing okay. on what, what really is happening at the end right. of the movie. He kills the bouncer. He goes upstairs. Iris's customer is supposed to be this mafioso-type guy. He kills him. Yeah. But yeah, he's taking shots. Iris witnesses much of the violence, so it's like he's fucking her up even more. Well, yeah. But at the same time, he is saving her from some horrible things happening. But yeah, this explosion of violence right in front of her. He tries to kill himself, but he's out of ammo. All the guns are out of ammo. Somehow. So he just sits on the couch there and he waits for the police. He's still got that knife, though, right? Well, that's a lot to (laughs) ask. Yeah. This is the part where they really had to fight to not get the X rating. They had to go back and forth a lot. And what? I think Scorsese said that the cuts and the changes that the MPA wanted made it worse than what it was originally. Oh, wow. Which well, you, hear that, you hear that a lot. I know. People are always like, what they ended up getting was worse than what they originally had because the MPA always asks for like stupid shit that yeah, yeah. ends up making it worse somehow. <laughs> <laughs> 
the police arrive, you get that bloody suicide pantomime that's kind of famous where he's got the finger guns, yeah, yeah. bloody hand. Just a really crazy, insane overhead shot to show you all the carnage, and they do that tracking thing up above everybody, like kind of everyone's frozen. Right. And the way they did he that was they of, were filming that in a condemned building, and they just cut through the ceiling <laughs> to uh, get the camera well, up kinda to do cool. that. Yeah, and he, he feigns death here, or maybe dies. Yeah, well, that's the thing. A lot of people have speculated that the last part of the movie was a dream sequence, a last dying thing. Yeah. But both Scorsese and Schrader have both said that no, that that's not what's happening, that he does recover. Wow. Because they had a different point to make with the ending. I had only seen this movie maybe twice before we did it for this show, and I had always remembered him dying at the end. See, I can 100% get behind the idea of him being dead and this whole end sequence he has, like how he's envisioning himself right before he dies. Yeah. But I, I don't know. The fact that that's not the case in the eyes of the makers of the movie, the end of the movie is so fucking crazy. It seems yeah. so unbelievable. So what happens is Travis eventually recovers and all of the media coverage is that he's this hero right? who's killed these Which, three scumbags. I don't get it, though. Why would, Wouldn't he go to jail for this in any universe? It depends. Vigilantes have gotten off. Now, I don't know if you could argue self-defense in this case, so no. I, it does seem like he would face some sort <laughs> yeah. of a trial or something. But I think that they wanted to have some commentary on the perception of what a hero is the fact how much that. coverage yeah. and spin and slant and all this stuff can change things because right we and as viewers understand. know what his real intention was oh, that yeah. day and he didn't get to do that so this whole thing where he turns out as a hero is almost like his plan b right and they do get to play with the whole perception from society and how it just can change and then that has this trickle down effect on everything yeah. So he recovers from his injuries. He gets a letter from Iris's father, which is narrated by a voice we haven't heard before, presumably her dad. And she has returned to Pittsburgh, of all places, and she's going to school again. And they make it seem as if things are working somewhere, out for Iris. Somehow things are going to be okay. Even I mean, though it seems insane. She need a lot of therapy. Which I would say so. I don't know how common that was in 76. Hopefully people could get her help. Well, she's back in school. By the time Travis returns to work, he gets a surprise fair in his cab, and it's Betsy, of all people, and they have this weird reconciliation. She's uh, putting the press on him a little bit, it feels like. She's kind of impressed by him being a hero now and getting all this positive attention. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, he's a hero, but it's also like, he, he did violently kill three people. I do think that Travis himself may address that when he was saying, because she's asking him about his injuries, and he said right. something about the way that they talk about it in the paper, and it's not a big deal, blah, blah, blah. And I think he's just downplaying it to be cool. But yeah, yeah. I think that you can almost look at that like the way that the papers were writing about this, it was painting him as a hero. So the way that they're writing about it is not what we saw. Right. So it doesn't sound as gruesome and horrible. Yeah, and yeah. It sounds very heroic, like Batman swooping in and saving the underage girl. Yeah. And this is just one of those moments of someone showing back up after it's just like, well... You had a window, I, Right, honey. it's gone. The yeah. window slams shut. Although, my Sybil Shepherd window still open. <laughs> It'll now. always be open for me. Right. Travis is afforded the opportunity to kind of stick it to her in a way by not allowing her to pay, which sounds dumb, but I kind of get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I don't even need your money. Right, I don't like, need your $2.50. <laughs> 
He kind of leaves it where she may have been more interested in him than he was in her. Yeah. So like he won. Yeah. Right? He's like, That's what it's all about. He just about. goes, she gets out and she's like leaning in to pay and she, it seems like maybe she wants to talk a little bit. Yeah, and he's yeah. just like so long and drives away. Right. <laughs> And then, like, it ends with him kind of looking in the rearview mirror and, like, well, making a disgusted Well, that's the ending that they wanted. <laughs> that's not supposed to be at her. That's okay. supposed to be, like, later, I think. And that's the point they wanted to end on. Not that this was a dream sequence, but that nothing has changed. He's still and that he is going to go was. down this path again. Right. Because okay. in reality, he's not a hero. That's the whole yeah. point. That's the way the media portrayed it. But right, right, right. He's still this kind of and then the delusional, other- crazy person that's going <laughs> to go towards violence again and then the other piece of it is it's like recycled we're back to where he maybe has this chance with betsy again <laughs> yeah and once his again inabi- his inability to just go on the right path right like it's yeah a cyclical moment of travis going down this path of despair loneliness and then eventually violence and horror ensues it's just so like happens that the role of the dice the first time led to this path that he gets portrayed as a hero but that was just right. an accident that really was not true oh yeah and that- i can't envision any scenario in which this scene plays out and iris goes back to pittsburgh and goes back to school and he's a hero it just seems so insane it's a bit far-fetched but i think you can allow it okay it's far-fetched it but it's the not 70s <laughs> you know it's it's one of those things that you can chalk up to movie logic as okay. being okay yeah the reality of real life would be a lot different probably she would be permanently damaged in a way that there may be no coming back from between the horrible sex life that she was living and then seeing just horrendous violence up close yeah at that age and then he would inevitably have to face some kind of repercussions for this i don't think that the police are gonna break their necks trying to get justice for these three pathetic disgusting low lives i mean there, well, i don't think yeah. there was anyone crying out for justice for I'm them thinking but, no. but still in, in the interest of some law and order you can't allow a vigilante to just do whatever he wants that's the whole reason why vigilantism is not really allowed in society because you can't just let people do whatever they want it's a good <laughs> because point who watches the watchman <laughs> well there you go it is fun to watch this movie and see scorsese in this time period i just love this whole it feels like more radical filmmaking that was going on. <laughs> like all of these stories, and we talked about it on the Jaws episode too, and like all the just the way that they were making the movie. And obviously, like Apocalypse Now is just like so famous for it. But I, I don't know. There was just like this rawness and grittiness to, that kind of really comes through in the movie. Definitely. And I don't know. It's just such a fun time period. And, and like I said, I mean, I'm so used to just seeing like Scorsese's movies being like dark and twisted and fun and fucked up, but like. They're just so, like, polished and feel, like, so Yeah, his so earlier stuff was a lot more like this. I think things started to change more into the 80s after right. Raging Bull, I guess. I just don't know that we would even be in a situation where a guy like Scorsese would be allowed to get to this point. Because his first couple of movies show promise, but they're not anything on this kind of level. And right. it, back then when they would make more adult-oriented films and be willing to spend a million dollars, which in 1976 would be, I don't know, a handful of million dollars. Now, like, I don't know, just things were easier to get done back then, and he was allowed to grow into this movie, whereas 
Now, if someone came out with like the equivalent of Scorsese's first few movies, now he would already be written off and people wouldn't care. Or it's just he like, wouldn't turn into Martin Scorsese. No, well, or it's just like he made Mean Streets, and then the next movie he directed was like Iron Man Four. Yeah. Or well, yeah, know, that's part of World it too. Three. Yeah. Anybody that shows any promise whatsoever gets sucked up into some bigger thing. Right. But you know, this is the way it goes. So there you have it. So that'll do it for Taxi Driver. <laughs> nice positive note to end this dark episode on. Anyway, so follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on, on iTunes. For our new spinoff here. On the record, coming shortly. And we will have our best of 2018. That's Give us right. a second. It's coming up in to. February. So lots of cool stuff. A lot of movies as to talk always. about this year. Yeah. And uh, we're, we'll keep on rolling. So thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. When you got your diamonds and you got your pretty clothes and the chauffeur drives your car, you let everybody know. Don't play with me, cause you play with fire. Your mother, she's an heiress. St. John's Wood And your father Be there with her If he Only could So don't play With me Cause you're playing with she likes me? Ah, I should have got the egg white omelet. Now, why should she like me? Who am I? There's a million people to like. The omelet. Damn. <laughs> Maybe she could like me. Is it that far-fetched? Maybe she sees something. Is it possible? No. No. Not possible. Not possible. <laughs>